We are now in part four of Philippians, the book or letter of Philippians. We're going through it. It's a series we've been doing. This is part four, but it's chapter three. Oh, you just gave away the ending. Oh. And um, uh, because we did an introduction one. So we'll continue from here. I don't know whether we'll go to chapter four or the end of chapter three, but I'm only going to be able to do half of chapter three. It's amazing stuff. There's so much in it. And uh, I trust that it's going to be exciting for you. But what I'm trusting as well is that it's not just information, that it's not just knowledge and stuff that you come out saying, oh, that was so fascinating. I remember this interesting fact. Um, But I'm hoping that it goes a little bit deeper than that from what we can see in Paul's writing today. Are you happy for me to launch straight in? Anybody? Just Sarah. Okay, I'll do it just for her. It's fine. That's what being married is. So, I'm going to get straight into the text here because it's fascinating and there's a lot to get through. Philippians 3 verse 1. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Stop there. Is that you? Is that you? Does this characterize you? Do you know that Christian joy is a mark? Well, let me put it this way, which is a better way than the way I just put it. Joy is a mark of being a Christian. Joy is a mark of being a Christian. If you don't exhibit that, if that isn't a part of you, if it isn't an attribute of yours, if I had to ask the five closest people to you, would you say that they are joyful? Now, we don't use that terminology really much anymore today, but I think everyone would understand what you mean. Uh, Would the five people closest to you say, no, not that person? Or would they say, absolutely? And how would you characterize that? See, because joy is different to happiness. Happiness depends on happenings. Happiness goes up and down. Happiness, when things are good, happiness is good. When things are not good, happiness is not there. But joy is a different thing. Joy is a constant. It's stable. Joy is something that that looks to the future, and that's the important thing of joy, and that's why it's indestructible. That's why our joy as Christians is indestructible, because it focuses on the future. So, I mean, I'm looking here and I'm seeing if, if you guys who are about to start exams and do things, you school guys, if someone came back to the past, if someone from the future came to now and said to you, I've seen the future, you are going to get an A plus when you finish matric, guaranteed it's done. I've seen it. I watched you get the award. I was there. Well, do you know how you would treat a test that you didn't do too well on sometime between grade 8 and grade 12? You wouldn't really be phased. Isn't that true? Because someone from the future told you, I end up with an A+. So it's not a big deal. So if I get like a a bit of a poor exam one day or or I do this a little bit wrong, um, I know how this ends up. So I can be okay. I can have a stability that pulls me through these little rough times that happen. Because you're focusing on the future and joy is like that. Our joy as Christians, and this is why it's so important that we have this indestructibility in our joy as Christians. Because we look to the future. 
our joy isn't based on what's happening right here and now and my circumstances and I'm going through a tough time. My joy is based on the fact that I know that in the future I will be with Christ. That's what my joy rests in. And you say, well, that's quite abstract. That's the truth of the matter. And you can rest and you can hinge every single thing on your life knowing that at the end of this, you get to be with the Father who loves you, with God Almighty. You get to be there. And that is the thing. That's like your cable. You know, sometimes you go through patches where it's just misty and cloudy and dark and you're not quite sure where you're going, but there's like a rope. And you just hold on and you just take one step, one step, one step. I know that I'm going in the right direction, although I cannot see where this is leading me. And where it's leading you is that ultimate destination. And that is what you hold on to as you go through life and the difficulties and the storms and the mistiness and the cloudiness and the uncertainty and the difficulty. Because we hang on to something. There's joy over there. There's my ultimate prize is over there. This may not be amazing, but that's amazing. And I'm going to hold on to this so that I can get there. Does that make sense? It's important. You need to have a life that's characterized by that. I'm not talking about that flaky, weird, you know, those people who are like, how are you doing? Blessed, brother, blessed. How are you? I'm so blessed. Always blessed. Always. No, the fact of the matter is we go through tough things. And it's not the person who can fake it and say that everything's always okay. It's the person who says, I'm going through a junk time, but I know that I will get through it. I know that there is hope on the other side. I know that there is light on the other side. I can get through this knowing for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That's what the Bible says about Jesus. The joy set before him was us. We were the thing at the end of his line. How, how amazing is that? He was looking forward to us and we're looking forward to him. And we get to meet each other. It's quite a fascinating concept. But anyway, let me move on. There's just so much in these verses. So, whatever happens, dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Paul was a fantastic teacher. Paul was repetitive. That's how good teachers are. Good teachers, repetitive, repetitive, repetitive. And you say, oh, why do they keep saying the same thing? Because good teachers know that that's what it takes to get things into thick skulls. Now, I don't work like that. I've never been a great teacher. I may have studied teaching. I may teach sometimes from up here. But but teaching I find difficult because I don't like to repeat myself. Because for me, I've said it. Why do I need to say it again? I already preached on that four weeks. And now now you're coming to me and you're saying that you're battling with this. But I preached on it four weeks ago. Why do I need to keep on saying it? Because that's the way I am. But Paul was a much better teacher than I am. And so he repeats this stuff over and over. And he never gets tired of telling you these things. You know, the stuff that Paul says in his letters is like bread and water. It's the basics of Christianity. And it's awesome. I think the problem with people like me and some other teachers and preachers is that there's this, this uh, thing that you want to be novel. You want to have a revelation no one else has had before. You want to share something special that no one's ever thought of. And, and, you know, and there's a problem with that. And it's, it's not realistic, it's not sustainable, and it's not actually what grows and equips a congregation. That's the truth of the matter. If you went out to the Drosty for supper every single night, and you had steak, and you had ribs, and you had, well, that would be amazing for about a week. But you can't live like that. You can't. Well, you can, but you, you know, you can't really. You shouldn't. You need, 
normal meals. You need fruit, vegetables, bread. Well, you know, the normal stuff, the stuff that you get from day to day. Uh, that's what you need. And you need that in your diet as well. So, so he's, he's got a fantastic style and method uh, in that he just does the basics over and over and over again. And he built strong churches and strong people through the way that he is. So it's fantastic. And why does he teach like that? I do it to safeguard your faith. Now, the Bible is our safeguard. When he says he's doing it to safeguard our faith, he's talking, I mean, he's written quite a lot of the the New Testament. Um, He wrote quite a lot of what we understand to be the Bible. So the Bible is our safeguard. Morally and theologically, when we read it, it alerts us to corrections we need to make in our thoughts, attitudes, and actions. The Bible should do that. You should allow the Bible to do that in your life. Where, Where it's not just pages in a book, but this is something which can transform. This safeguards my life. Why are you doing this? You need to be, you need to change your course a little bit, stop doing that, and head in this direction. Well, the Bible can have that authority in your life as the Word of God to safeguard your faith, to protect you. I don't know how to be in a relationship. Well, let me show you what the Word of God says. This is what a relationship looks like. This is what an unhealthy relationship looks like. So if you want to safeguard your faith and keep going with Christ and keep on strong, this is what it looks like. Well, you can choose to use it or lose it. That's up to you, how you use the Word of God. But he writes these things so that we can see them We can think about them, we can process them, and we can alter the course of our life based on the Word of God. Does that make sense? So, fantastic guy, um, wonderful writing, uh, very excited about it. So, so this is where he starts. Have joy. Here's the teaching, but then he gets into this. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. Okay, so he changes tack just a little bit. He's like, be joyful in all circumstances, but watch out for those dogs. Now, he didn't choose his words like randomly. Dogs weren't cute little things that you pet. You know, you get them at the SPCA or you buy them or something like that. Dogs were bottom-of-the-barrel things. They were things that, um, you know, ate the rubbish and and, uh, made a mess everywhere and were dingy and mangy and gross. They weren't lovely pets like they are today. Um, They were the bottom of the barrel. So he says, watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators. Now, it was against Jewish custom to mutilate your body. But he's saying, he's talking about circumcision. But now he doesn't just call them those guys who circumcise you, those mutilators. He's going like a step further. So he's choosing really harsh, descriptive language to say, These guys, whoever they are, we'll get to that in a second, you need to watch out for them. Should we see who they are? They are probably, not probably, they're most likely Jewish Christians. They're most likely people who were Jewish, who were following the Jewish customs and traditions and who had grown up with a Jewish uh, way of living and had become Christians. Now, there was a group of them that were following Paul's ministry and were sowing these seeds behind him. He was preaching grace. He was preaching freedom, liberty, chains breaking. This is all up to God. God has done this for you. You don't need to do anything. And they came and they said, yeah, that's kind of true. But what you should do is get circumcised and follow the law. Then you'll be a real Christian. 
And they were following his ministry and they were, they were spreading this. And it wasn't, obviously, it's not true. So he was saying, watch out for those dogs, those mutilators, those people who do evil. See, for those people, it was what they did that made them believers rather than the free gift of God's grace given by Christ. That's a very important distinction. We know most of us what circumcision is. Um, Right. (laughs) And all the guys can take a deep breath. We're not going to have a class after this because we don't believe that it's necessary in the physical to make a difference in the spiritual. Um, but they very much did, and they tied the two things together. In Genesis 17, it was God himself who instituted this thing of circumcision. And it was with Abraham, and he said, I'm going to choose you. I'm calling you. I'm choosing you. You will be my people, your descendants, and your descendants after that. And the way that you will know that, and the way that you will dedicate yourself, and you know that the way that people will know that there's a special relationship between, between uh, you guys and me is circumcision. And so for generations and generations, and even up until this day, um, Jewish boys will be circumcised. Now today that happens for various other reasons, but it's, a, it's an interesting reason why it started. It was to indicate a special relationship between God and his people. But these guys, you see, it wasn't motivated by a pure motive. It was motivated by pride, them following Paul around and spreading these things. Because what was happening was, was they said being saved can't be that easy. Paul says just have faith in Jesus. No. Yeah, that's fine, but you need to. Because these guys had put so much energy and effort and work into becoming, uh, in, into living a Jewish lifestyle, into following all the laws of the Old Testament and, and all of those things, that for them it, was, it wasn't fair. Because I'm doing everything right. And here you get this guy who's some scholarly off the street and he's doing whatever and he's still sniffing stuff and now you tell him, oh, just believe in Jesus and he's saved. Well, we are not the same. You can't say he's the same as me. Listen here, I don't sin. I don't mess up. And when I do, I'm quick and I sacrifice something and I make it right before God. We're not the same. So they need to follow some rules as well. And that was the bottom line of what these guys were doing. So the modern equivalent of this kind of legalistic mentality is this. People who say we've got to add something to our simple faith. It's people who say, yes, all you need to do is put your faith in Jesus and have a quiet time every day and pray and don't swear anymore, if you swear, and don't drink and stop doing this. And in the old days, it was much more radical from what I hear. Stop doing sport. Stop listening to secular music. Break your records. Do all these things. Um, yeah, you can be saved, but you need to do all these things as well. And that's what makes sure that you're a believer. And then they took it a step further and said, and you've got to be circumcised. Because that's what shows the covenant between me and God and you and God. So if you don't have that, no matter how good you are, you're not good enough. So there was a serious problem here. But I don't know if you remember Pastor Donovan's message when he was here a couple of weeks ago. Salvation is by grace through faith. That's it. Ephesians 2. Salvation is by grace and through faith. Don't think that you'll satisfy God 
by busily doing his work. He sees what you do and he rewards you. But here's the catch. And this is where these guys got it wrong. And we don't want to get it wrong because we do get it as wrong today as they got it back then. That's the reality. Is this. What you do for God doesn't get you anywhere with God. What you do for God comes as a response to what God's already done for you. You see, we don't do anything to please God, to get His favor, to get His merit. If I have three quiet times a week, I'm doing so well. Me and God are like, hey man, we're like tight. No. God's done something for me, so I would love to have a deeper relationship with Him. So I spend more time with Him in the morning or whatever. See, there's a very big difference. It's a small thing practically because you're actually doing the same thing. You know, I better serve in church because that's what you need to do. You know, if you're a real Christian, then you serve in church and, and, and uh, you, you, are, you can be saved, but there's another level to being saved. You know, where you actually serve in church. And there's another level where you actually give money to the church. Well, that's, now you can do exactly the same thing and you can give offerings and you can serve in church, but you're doing it as a response to what God's done in you. Same thing, different heart. And that's the big deal. That's what we're dealing with. So, you ready to move on? Cool. Verse 3. We who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. So, our salvation, what he's saying, has nothing to do with physical circumcision. Real circumcision, as he says, is devotion in heart and mind and life to God. It's devotion, it's love, it's, it's a heart issue. And he actually gives three signs of real circumcision. And, and by real circumcision, I mean that, that relationship with God. He says this, we worship by the Spirit of God. Other translations say, those who worship, we who worship in spirit. Christian worship, this is an important thing. You see, again, it's, it's, we can do all the stuff physically on the outside that makes us look like we're worshiping God. People who worship God physically, you can come and you can get into a church and you can sit at the right time and stand at the right time and raise your hands at the right time and sing at the right time and uh, you can do everything you need to do. But isn't it true that you can follow all the rituals there are and you can be far from God inside? And isn't it true that you can, do, you can, you can follow absolutely every method you can find that looks like worshiping God, but you can still have bitterness and hate in your heart? So what he's saying is that's not the important thing. The important thing is not like, hallelujah, jump three times, do this, whatever. No, no, that's not the important thing. The important thing is do you worship in spirit? The important thing is what's happening on the inside of you. Are you soft to God? True Christian worship is loving God and it's serving people. Now, the other thing he says in that there, the, the, the second thing that he says about um, those who are truly circumcised, we rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. So those who are truly circumcised realize they can't boast in anything that they have done because none of it earned them salvation. If you are truly circumcised, as, the, as you understand what I'm saying there, if you are a Christian, if you consider yourself a true Christian, then it's not about what you've done and how good you've been and how amazing you are and how far back you can trace your family history. 
how much money you inherited. Nothing to do with that. We rely on what Christ has done for us. The third thing you can see there, we put no confidence in what? Human effort, nothing. The Jews put their confidence entirely in human effort in two ways. Circumcision, following the law. They put their, their confidence was in that. And let me tell you something. I, I, I have spoken to more than one Jewish person on more than one occasion, and I always leave feeling sad. Sad for them because they never are good enough. And it's depressing. You know, it's like, I know, I just need to do this better. I just need to be more devout. I just need to read more. I just need to study the Torah more. I just need to attend more uh, classes. I need to go. Maybe I should go and study in Israel. I'm like, really? And once you've done all of that, you'll know more. But what then? You know, and I, I always end up feeling like, man, I'm so grateful to God that we put no confidence in human effort. That it's God. God has done it. And we can rely on that. So the Jews then, they trusted themselves. Christians trust God. That's what Paul was saying. Verse 4. Oh, there they are. I keep forgetting those. Verse 4. Though I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could. Indeed, if others have a reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. Now, this is a fascinating little portion that he puts here. So what he's saying is, we don't put any confidence in human effort, right? You all got that. Then he says, but if you did, if human effort was some sort of standard, then let me share with you my human effort story. Because it's going to trump yours, and it will. Believe me, uh, it, will, it will shrink any Jewish person who comes and says, um, you know, that, that they're better, that they've done everything that they need to do. So you've got to hear this. So, so at first he's speaking against the Jews, it sounds like, in terms of circumcision and doing things by the law. Um, but then, then he starts to list his credentials. And every phrase has so much meaning. I want to go through these really quickly. Let's read it and then I'll talk about it. So this is how he starts. If anyone has a reason to be boastful about their physical, uh, the, way that they, the way that they are, it's him. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. So he has listed everything he could possibly list. Nothing there is listed by chance. I'm going to go through it really quickly, but just this is for the sake of fascination, just to understand the way that Paul thinks. He says, if anyone's got a reason to boast, I'm the guy, and let me tell you why. Circumcised at eight days. So what he's saying there, he's true Israelite. You know, Abraham, he had a son with his maidservant, and he had a son with Sarah. And the son of Sarah, Israelites. Son of Hagar, Ishmael, Ishmaelites. Okay, so there were two separate things. Now, now you could, they, they could both have sort of said, yeah, Israel, Israel, we both come from Abraham. But, but the Ishmaelites circumcised on the 13th year when the boys turned 13. 
but the true Israelite circumcised when the boys were eight days old. So he's saying, let me just tell you which one I am, the true one there, circumcised after eight days. And, uh, and what he's saying there as well is that I wasn't circumcised as a convert to Judaism. I wasn't an adult when I was circumcised. So I was the real deal uh, when it was eight days old. Then he, then he says, Israel, oh, what they say there, I was circumcised when I was eight years old. I'm pure-blooded citizen of Israel. That's an important thing. Because a Jewish person, for them to say that, that's like emphasizing the special relationship that they have with God. That, that again, traces their lineage all the way back um, to Abraham. So, then he carries on. He talks about being from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, the tribe of Benjamin was like the elite tribe. There were 12 tribes that came uh, from Jacob. And Benjamin was like the, kind of the top tribe if I can say that. They were the only tribe born in the promised land. Uh, it was from the tribe of Benjamin that God chose Saul, who was the first king of Israel, who was probably why Paul was named Saul before he was Paul. Um, so, so now he's saying, okay, so I'm a true Israelite. I can trace my lineage back, and I come from the elite tribe of Benjamin. Then he starts getting into some serious details. And he says he's Hebrew. He says a real Hebrew, if there ever was one, why is that important? Isn't that like just saying you're an Israelite? But it's not. You see, to be a true Hebrew, you would have had to retain the language. You would have had to re- retain he- the Hebrew language, um, which most of them didn't. So most of the Jews who settled in Greece and all support parts of other places, uh, they would learn and adapt the language from there, and they would lose their ability to speak with the Hebrew language. But there were those who said, no, I'm going to keep that. I'm going to carry on with my language, and I'm going to learn it, and I'm going to speak it, and I'm going to, I'm going to write it. And so he was one of those who took it another step further. So, so he was like at the top of that. Then, as far as the law went, he was a trained Pharisee. I don't know if you know this, but there were millions of Jews at that stage. There were only 6,000. There were allowed to be 6,000 Pharisees at any one time. That's it. So now you're really separating the cream from the milk here. Now this is like serious, hardcore Jewish people now we're talking about. And, uh, and he made the top of that list as one of the Pharisees. They literally devoted their lives to following every letter of the law. That was their life's ambition and goal was to do that. I mean the word Pharisee literally means separated ones. So it's like you get the Jews and then you get the Hebrews and the Benjaminites and then you take out of that and you get the best of the best. Uh, these are the guys they would have sent into space um, if there was some sort of program like this. Then he goes on a little further. I was so zealous. Now being zealous is a major attribute in the Jewish culture. may not sound hectic to us. For us, we would maybe use the word passionate. And if you were or you weren't, it wouldn't make a big difference. But there, if you were passionate... A zeal for your house overwhelms me. You know, that, that was a very important thing for a Jewish person. And he's saying, I was so zealous that there was this thing called the way, these Christians that started, and they were opposed to Judaism. So I was so zealous, I, did, I sought to wipe them off the planet. That's how zealous I was. And then not only that, as for righteousness, being right with God, I obeyed the law without fault. 
That means if you had to ask anyone in my community, if you've ever seen me sin, every single person would say no. Because I observed everything to a fault. Never said a wrong word. Never did a wrong thing. That's so... Okay, so if they made a TV show about this guy and put it on MTV, it would probably be called The Ultimate Jew. Um, he, he would be the top of the top, okay? Top of the class, best of the best, amazing. So, and it's important. I mean, isn't it crazy how God chose him and he was just the perfect guy for the job? People are saying, how can you criticize Judaism? And he's saying, I'm not doing it from the outside. I've not only been inside Judaism, I've been inside into the top of the top. So if anyone's qualified to criticize this system, it's this guy. That's what he's saying. It's quite, it's quite intense. Um, it's just a couple of verses. So let's see where it goes from there because it goes straight into, he goes on to say this, and this is the important thing because it sounds like he's boasting. Hey, check at me. I'm amazing. I, look, I can trace my lineage. But, but check this out. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. He's had a very clear revelation of Jesus Christ. Everything that he had poured his life and heart and energy into for the last 40 years, he says, I consider it worthless because of what Christ has done. So Paul proves to the Jews that he has the right to speak. But now he says, I consider that stuff worthless because of what Christ has done this morning. It might be helpful just to make this practical in your own life because although we might not be as amazing as Saul in what he was doing, I think sometimes we carry who we are, what we've done, where we were born, how much money we have into our walk with God as well. Except we struggle to say, I thought these things were valuable. We still hold on to them as if they are valuable. We say, no, I was, I was born here. I can trace my family back to 1864. We, we mean something. We're significant. This is the car I've got. This is the house I've got. But everything that he has, everything that he worked for, everything was worthless compared to what Christ has done. And we saw this with Paul, that you can be heading in a very clear and certain direction for your life. With all the things that make you you, But when God arrests you, your path takes a major shift. And the things you were once so proud of, the things you valued the most, become of no value whatsoever. Paul goes on. See, all these achievements that he had, he could have looked at them as something special. He could have held on to them, but he didn't all the things he would have considered to be his strong points were quite meaningless to him after he had encountered Christ. This is is the thing that I get from this verse. All human achievement, and now this, this is for you, all human achievement had to be laid aside so that he could accept the free gift of Christ. See, while he was holding on to everything that he was and everything that he had done and how amazing he was, There was no chance he was going to accept the free gift of Christ. You can't hold both. See, those guys who were going behind him and preaching that you have to have both, yes, you can have Jesus, but then you must also have the law and everything else. 
He's saying you can't have both. You've got to swap them. If you're going to take Christ, you've got to give off all of your human achievement. Everything that you think you are has to be laid aside. So, verse 8. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Yes, can we say that? I don't even know. Everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage. Such a nice word. He uses the word, (laughs) if I was with my kids, I'd say (laughs) S-H. Okay? No, I wouldn't. One T. Is that how they say it? SH1T. That's actually what he's saying. That's the language he's using. A much more politically correct way would be to say this. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as crap. He chooses his words carefully. He's not just saying that to get a reaction. He's saying, I see it as so useless So meaningless. That word garbage in the Greek literally means feces. Dung, rubbish, manure, trash. It's it's like disgusting. Because and he uses that strong language because he's saying everything that I did to get me a relationship with God couldn't do it. It's absolute rubbish. Paul discovered something. That a right relationship with God isn't based on the law, but on faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the word that he uses there is a really important one, that word righteousness. This is when, when Paul uses the word righteousness, this is what he means, a right relationship with God. It's quite easy to remember. He means a right relationship with God. My own righteousness through obeying the law. He counts it as rubbish because you couldn't get it. So knowing that, I've rephrased what he said here, and hopefully it's true to the to the form, you can tell me. But it says this. All my life, I've been trying to get into a right relationship with God. I tried to keep it by keeping strictly to the Jewish law, but I found it less than useless to achieve that. I found it no better than rubbish. So I gave up trying to create a goodness of my own. I came to God in humble faith, and I found the relationship I had looked for for so long. Everything that he tried to do to be good didn't make him good enough. And lastly, and I'll close with this, the last two verses. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. This is one intense fellow. That word, no, The English is so limited. That's why we have to keep going back to the Greek in these things because there's just, you know, where we have one word for love, they've got four words for love. And they all mean a different kind of love. And and it's the same with these things of knowing. And um, you, you get a lot more out of it when you can dig a little bit into the original text. But that I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead wasn't like I want to know about Christ. It wasn't like I need some more knowledge about Christ. Can someone please give me something to read so that I can know more about him? It was an intimate thing. 
It was like a couple, like a husband and wife. That's, that's the word that he used there. I want to know Christ. I really want to know him. I want to walk with him. I want to understand him. I want to be there. I want to talk with him. I want to share things with him. I want to know where he's going. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. 